Yellow Edge, in association with the Winston Churchill Trust, proudly presents the Wayfinder Podcast. In this series, we ask high-performing individuals how they plotted the path to success. Our guests are all Churchill Fellows, having been provided the opportunity by the Churchill Trust to research their chosen field internationally. The Wayfinder explores the often winding paths of how these fellows came to their professions and catalogues the trials and tribulations faced along the way. And now your host, Scarlett Bennett. Hello and welcome to the Wayfinder podcast. With me today, I have Carly Davenport-Acker. Carly has an extensive background working with not-for-profit education and commercial sectors to engage with Indigenous individuals, communities and organisations around the world. Welcome, Carly. Thanks for joining us today. Great to be with you, Scarlett. Thanks so much to the Churchill Trust. Carly, you've worn many hats over the years in the work that you do, but I'm wondering if there's a common thread. What is it that drives you in your work with Indigenous communities? I would say to that excellent question, there's, it's very much driven on my curiosity of source knowledge. So who are the storytellers? Who are the artists, the elders, the, the community leads that have responsibility for bringing that story through to the next generation? That's something that I've, I've been very... Um, uh, not just curious, but passionate about in learning how those stories are told from ancient past into the future and how is it that digital technology and other means can facilitate that. Yeah. Um, just to add to that, Scarlett, there's probably a few things that really do drive me. I love seeing people's lights shine and seeing their confidence literally like ignite and grow and seeing that incredible connection between elders and senior people in particular and young people and the way that the elders look after young people in bringing those stories through. And there's it's such a conscious understanding of walking in the footprints of ancestors and how that messaging and knowledge can come up and into the future for everyone. There's so much generosity there. So I've been driven by being a conduit for such uh, knowledge to come through and who those source providers of knowledge are and, and often revealing or unearthing those people that have actually probably never spoken to a camera before or never shared their oral history or family ancestral history or their local story for those people to realise and understand that their own personal story is so important for the national and world context, that their knowledge is invaluable for the globe. It's that remote global two-way, you know, sharing. And there's there's so many people that um, within Australia there's literally thousands and beyond of, of people that have never had a microphone or a platform, but their, their history and their ambition and their aims at a local community development level or for their family or their First Nations business is the future. So I, I love to see though that 
voice and those lights literally coming on and helping that come up and out. That's just wonderful and so, so interesting to hear about. Over your 25-year career working with Indigenous people then, are there any particular roles or projects that stand out as key highlights? There's so many. It's probably hard to know where to start. I'm very blessed in it. I think there would be a couple of hundred plus, but I'm going to just share a couple today to get the context of of those roles. And I think firstly, um, as as a young professional at the National Gallery of Australia in the mid to late 90s, I, I had the role of being a researcher on something called under a Southern Sun, a CD-ROM project. So that might show my age. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and I had the responsibility of researching and interviewing 12 of the 24 Indigenous and non-Indigenous artists of that era, of that time. And one of the Aboriginal artists that I interviewed and spent a little bit of time with was the great Rover Thomas. And the painting that was brought up and out was Ruby Plains Massacre story, this beautiful ochre that was uh, on show in the gallery at the time. And as I researched and interviewed him in person, I was only about 22 or so, so it's like 1996, and I learned that the CD-ROM would be launched with the first massacre story within Australian school context. So when you're that young and you realise that those hard stories have not been shared within curricula before, ah, it was amazing. It was, it was, um, I was daunted, I was overwhelmed, yet I was so, um, you know, lucky to be that facilitator of his story and, that then went on to influence a huge body of work that's been going ever since, really. And just to add into that, um, a second role would be as manager of Munapi Arts and Crafts on the Tiwi Islands. And I was there for um, just over probably two years and three months from 2001 to about 2004 almost. And that time with the Tiwi people really educated me as to how important ancestral design and story and knowledge are for the new generation and body of artworks coming up and through, especially through the young people. And I was, I had the, um, I facilitated Thekla Prontatameri and a wonderful artist called Jean Baptist Apatimi to access the National Museum of Australia's collection holdings. And whilst I was in there with those two women, a huge box was unearthed and uncovered and the lid taken off. And Jean Baptist looked into that box and she's about 75 at the time and she got quite teary in her eyes and she looked at us and she she said in a very gravelly voice, I wonder where that went to. And I said, oh, what's all this about? And she said, that was my engagement present back in the 60s. My husband, Declan, he made that for me. And it was... Oh, wow. Yeah. It was four faces painted on a Pukamani pole in four directions. So there was four faces times four, horizontal to vertical going around. 
And then she told the story about how, how it was sold to the nuns at the time. And she was so moved and so happy to see that particular special, meaningful object. And to me, that just, I just, all of, we were just blown away by the power of a living collection, but more importantly, how people make a collection come alive. And collections absolutely need people to breathe that knowledge today into them because often they're recorded without that knowledge of the first makers, the provenance of the first peoples who've actually mm. crafted those things. So, so that was just two examples. But just to, just to um, weave back into the Robert Thomas story, that the planning of the seed of that massacre story influenced my entire life because I, I worked then at the Melbourne Museum and then I lived in Canada for a year or so and I came back and all I wanted to do was to work in the desert, remote communities, and I just felt that there was just some, you know, something I could do and help and support. But that actually created a time and a project which uh, was called Nura Kujawalcha, which means one country, one people, which created the international blockbuster exhibition called Iwara Kuju, One Road. And that was a six-year project in my role as co-founder, project manager and co-curator. And the whole heart of that project was to unearth the massacre stories of the Western Desert through local Western Desert Aboriginal eyes and voices, which was about 10 language groups in a satellite around the Canning Stock Route. Mm. which is a 2,000-kilometre track in the middle of the Great Sandy, Little Sandy and Gibson Deserts. And so my role as project manager was to bring in those traditional owners and artists who could speak for that country. And we did a six-week trip along the stock route um, with 65 artists and a film crew and an intercultural team of about 17 And the artists expanded from 65 to 110 and then on to 243 contributors in a two-year period. And that created um, the partnership with the National Museum of Australia, Iwara Kuju One Road, which has been shown for the backdrop of Chogum, the International Olympic Expo in 2008 in China, uh, five of our capital cities, and uh, there's a global embassy touring much, much, much smaller photographic media show that's going all over the world. So it just goes to show that those historical stories of Australia, there's so much in which still must be told through First Nations worldview and perspective. That's absolutely fascinating. Is there a project then, Carly, that still tugs on your heart because you didn't achieve the the outcomes you'd hoped for? (laughs) That's such, a, that's such a hard question. Um, I can answer you to a certain point, Scarlett, but I think I hope this will paint the picture. So I was living in Alice Springs uh, in 2004 and I had the role of being uh, an arts coordinator with Karma Radio and my job was to work to the four town camps around Alice And to work with all the kids and the young people and come up with an exhibition that would then eventually be shown at the Alice Springs Convention Centre. 
And that was an incredibly emotionally challenging project. One, I had to drive the bus in and out of the, the, the camps. I had to build the trust of their kids and all their family mob. And then we had to come up with some artwork that was, you know, pretty good for them to enjoy and their families to come and for the local community more broadly. And over a several-month period, we, we all together achieved that. And Tangajiri Council had a lot to do with making that come to fruition. I think just to, to, to build this story to answer your question, when I facilitated that exhibition, which brought a few hundred people and all the kids and the literal lights on in everyone's life, eyes, so happy to share what they had made, whether it be murals or painting car doors or sculptures or, you know, so, so many um, artworks. I, I just felt that I wished I had have been the older Carly facilitating such an important project rather than the, the younger Carly. Um, but if anything, there wasn't a problem with or challenge with it other than um, my youth, my own youth at the time, facilitating such an a, a unwieldy and challenging, you know, exhibition aim. And under probably tough circumstances is just one facilitator making all that happen. Um, so I'd love to go back and do that again. <laughs> With the benefit <laughs> of I'd love to do it now. <laughs> True. <laughs> yes, wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all? <laughs> <laughs> but with the benefit of hindsight, then, is there anything in particular with that that you would do differently if you were to do it today? Um, Aside from perhaps getting get a bus driver, <laughs> <laughs> I would I would probably um, throw more resources at it. I think if you were to work with those communities, they truly need the creative industries to be invested in in uh, a really um, fundamental way that you know 20 years ago that wasn't quite there but it was scratching the surface of even coming in and out of you know the territory in WA and you know far north Queensland in you know for the last couple of decades I still fundamentally believe there really needs to be a bigger more local and federal policy in investing into the cultural and creative industries in remote and regional Australia um, because the kids that are there, the young people, the teenagers and the elders really waiting for such projects to harness and share their stories is like it could be, it just needs so much more investment and flourishing. So if, that, if I could change that, I would love to. But um, I'm, you know, I think I think that's part of my plan is to is to look at how such things could really become the forefront of important policy and investment in the country. Yeah, you've worked with culture, design, music, and new media to bridge remote and regional industries and livelihoods. In your experience, then, what are the ingredients for success? Oh, look, relinquish control. Uh, often the creative process is it, it's not yours to have or even the organisation that you represent. It has to be a collaboration through the many participants. And if you can create a space to allow that to happen, to actually 
let control go, so to speak, but have all of those ingredients there so people can interpret and create in a safe and trusted and open environment, then that's literally where magical things happen. Mm. And with that cultural safety and proper investment and collaboration and partnerships, literally magic does happen, extraordinary truth-telling and the honesty and vulnerability and generosity of people to share their stories absolutely comes out to, to the fore. And then it's really just up to those participants and stakeholders and the creative teams to record that and offer it up and out, but based on the intellectual cultural property of those knowledge holders and those storytellers. So there's, there's several ingredients in there, but I think it's more a trust and a willingness for people to engage and to feel like they really, really want to, uh, to share. What would you describe then as the biggest challenges when you're working in this space? I would say fear, risk and bureaucracy. Those three things, particularly often with bureaucracy when it's woven together with risk management, it often stifles the creative process or even the trust for partners, stakeholders and participants to engage. So as, as a facilitator, as a cultural intermediary, which is very much um, what, I, what I've been doing the last 25 years, is to, is to check the investors and stakeholders and local stakeholders and participants level of trust and bring everyone together into the same woven basket so to speak and allow for people to express their fear and express their vulnerability and work through that to tangibly work through what those issues may or may not be but it's actually being open to even this, having the space of um, that cross-cultural dialogue and sharing and honesty and problem-solving that um, makes partnerships true and strong and genuine and last for years. Mm. I understand, Carly, that you were the recipient of a fellowship from the Winston Churchill Trust in 2013. What did you set out to achieve at that time and how has this influenced your work and approach since? I set out to explore participatory media toolkits designed by Indigenous organisations around the world. And I really wanted to find out what makes participatory learning using digital media and storytelling become a vehicle to cross political, digital and cultural divides. And there's probably a secondary, you know, investigation to that research. It was very much how can participatory media conserve diversity, cultural diversity, and also promote cultural leadership within communities so, Can I just jump in, Carly, for those, yeah. just to quickly clarify, for listeners who might not know what participatory media is, could you just describe um, what that is and why it's important? Absolutely. 
participatory media is founded on cameras and recording equipment literally being in the hands of uh, local community members to solve local problems uh, and whether those community challenges could be climate change or food security or conflict resolution, just to name a, a big spectrum there, it takes away that third-party intermediary recording. So it really gives the agency and power to local people to say, hey, this is going on here and our families, our organisations declare and can see and can facilitate the actual solution and often all is needed is investment into that space. So it doesn't have to come from outside. The investment can come from outside, but the actual problem solving can nine out of ten times happen on the ground in that local space. So the participatory media is the interviewing questions and answers and editorial of a film sequence that records local people discussing local challenges, issues, realities to camera. And then they themselves tell that story, they edit it and then hand it over to government or to the philanthropist or the investor. And I was really able to see from the not-for-profit sector, the education sector, the government and, you know, that private sector where the innovation really is located also, how these toolkits, different kinds of digital storytelling toolkits are actually being used for those big world planetary problems. And has that, um, the learning and what you explored then, has that had an influence on, how, on the work you've done since that time? I would say uh, a thousand percent influence of all my work since then. Um, I saw community development at its best and I've kept in contact with several of those organisations and agencies and institutions and woven those contacts and knowledge into the work that I've been facilitating at the National Museum of Australia for several years as well, based on those contacts and learning. Um, but very much I learnt about the power of collaboration, which really is a fusion of intelligences and a fusion of disciplines and approaches. And, and that really, you know, cultural expression is based on that as well. So we have to have a toolbox that, that is multidisciplinary, not just one or two or three things, but something that, you know, can be shared for everyone to, to access. Mm. You mentioned the National Museum of Australia, and I understand you've recently been managing the Cultural Connections Initiative. Tell us about this. I'm curious. That's been a, a nationally award-winning program by an incredible intercultural team uh, that's been advised and guided by two senior Indigenous consultants. And through this small team, we have partnered the National Museum to 10 
local communities, councils, First Nations, businesses, arts and cultural organisations across East Coast Australia. It was very much in response to the 250th anniversary of the country from, from a Western and colonial perspective. But what the program, the Cultural Connections program, really wanted to, to do was to ask local communities in these 10 areas as to what has the history been, what, how important is it for you and how is it that you, you know, what are those hard stories today that impact your family and your life? And they very much um, created... Uh, incredible initiatives at a community-led local level, whether it be an exhibition in a botanical garden or, again, filmmaking and digital storytelling, uh, workshops, accessing the Queensland Museum and different collection holdings to then interpret the history in the past from their perspective. And through the last um, three years or so, we engaged, uh, I think it was, you know, more than 674 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander specialists across East Coast Australia, which is a pretty big group of people with power and agency locally. And that was, that was an amazing thing to facilitate. And in addition to that program, uh, the Encounters Fellowships program was included and that gives six First Nations fellows access to the National Museum's collection as well as uh, our role in partnering those cultural practitioners across Australia to other institutions with our partners and also back to the United Kingdom and overseas. So literally enabling uh, practitioners to research and locate vitally important cultural material for their family knowledge today as well as their organisations to then work with and interpret and, and very much a cycle of two-way learning in that museums lack so much information of the true language or cultural information. The way that these collections have been produced is often through unprovenanced historical sources where things, you know, were stolen from the past. So how to bring in cultural practitioners to then, you know, tell that story from a local knowledge space really helps museums and the collections, which in turn enables access for all generations to, to, to know about our country and its history in a better way. Mm. And I understand you've recently moved into a new role. Yes, that's right. Um, I have. I am going to be working with Parliament House and looking at uh, storytelling and nation building from a Canberra perspective, as well as looking at the outreach across Australia. So, again, working with the collections department and the schools department and the public programming, but being part of a special team that can work at the intersection of those different departments and engage professionals across the country that have contributed into those areas to help share the story of Australia in, in a really honest and, and truth-telling way. It sounds like a fabulous kind of culmination of a lot of things you've been working towards for many years. 
Thanks. Yes, it has. <laughs> so we've discussed things that have been achieved and things you've learned over past projects. But when you look to the future, where's the burning platform for you? What do you think really needs to be done? I think that the way forward is through partnerships. It's, it's not rocket science. It's really about various agencies coming together for a shared common cause. And in terms of our own community development needs across the country and the big issues like environmental country change, climate change, that can only be solved through those diverse intelligences coming together. So I think partnerships is the way forward. It's It really is. And when you look at, say, Europe and the United Kingdom, they have such uh, such an investment in that space. It's quite um, at a policy and practice level, it's really recognised that, that partnerships and collaboration is the way forward. And we definitely need to continue into that vein. But also, again, through literally the participatory media, the digital media side, it's the technology within the hands of First Nations practitioners and organisations and the power and agency of that that's really going to set not just the map or the benchmark but create the solutions that will ultimately be beneficial for everyone in Australia, if not beyond our shores. Mm. And what's your moonshot in terms of where you personally might be in five years' time? <laughs> what a question. Ah, oh, look, I would just like to hope that I am still in an engagement role, um, whether that's in one small community making a difference or whether it's in a national cultural institution making a difference. Uh, I, I wouldn't even choose between the two because I've had 25 years moving between the on-the-ground community organisations and multiple institutions if anything I'd love to still be continuing what I'm doing which is that being the bridge between diverse organizations as we try to make sense of and solve and improve and you know create more well-being in our lives and we're all going to need that <laughs> yes yes indeed <laughs> so true Carly Davenport-Acker, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the Wayfinder podcast today. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much, Scarlett. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Wayfinder podcast. For more information on Yellow Edge and our services, including professional development, coaching, strategic support, mediation and venue hire, visit yellowedge.com.au. For more information on the Winston Churchill Trust, visit churchilltrust.com.au.